welcome to the Rory's Nitro podcast, the show where we rip up the buy rates and TV ratings and declare our own winner in some of pro wrestling's biggest head-to-head battles. I'm your host, Lee Carlos Cunningham, and today for episode 7, we travel back in time to January 1987 to cover the first episode of NWA's World Championship Wrestling and the WWF's Primetime Wrestling for 1987. For me, this is a completely foreign journey. Uh, WWF fans started in around about 1988, have gone back and obviously watched all the pay-per-views, the WrestleManias and Survivor Series from this time, but have never seen a single TV show this early and certainly never seen any of the 80s NWA TV either. A rundown of the state of affairs at the time shows us that the WWF heavyweight champion was Hulk Hogan, the British Bulldogs had the tag team championship, and the macho man Randy Savage had recently picked up the Intercontinental title from Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. Over in WCW, Ric Flair had the world heavyweight title, Manny Fernandez, the Raging Bull, and Ravishing Rick Rude were the tag team champions, Tully Blanchard had the TV title, and the US tag team titles were in the hands of Rugged Ronnie Garvin and Barry Windham. Nikita Koloff had the United States title. And lastly, this show is coming courtesy of the fact that the WWE Network recently added some more 80s NWA TV, so big thanks for that, and hopefully they continue to add more retro TV. Looking forward to when Thunder drops so we can go Thunder versus SmackDown. Without any further ado, the coin has been flipped as usual, and this week, WWF's Primetime Wrestling is first up. Let's get to it. Primetime Wrestling is coming to you on January 5th, 1987, and we open up with the classic WWF block logo, and then a video package which is really just replays of a series of moves with some generic music dubbed over, not the slick production you'd come to see in later years. Then we go to a studio where we see Bobby the Brain Heenan and Gorilla Monsoon, which perked my interest a little bit, um, and seeing as though it's the first episode of the new year, Bobby Heenan is playing up the fact that he has a hangover, and Gorilla Monsoon is doing his best to make noise and disturb him. They throw to our first match, which is the Dream Team, British Beefcake and Greg Valentine, with luscious Johnny V, Johnny Valiant, up against the Islanders, Tamar and Haku. Um, the Dream Team are already in the ring, and as Finkel's introducing them, I notice he's using the MSG mic, so we're coming from Madison Square Garden, and Haku and Tamar come out, and it appears as though they're faces at this point in time. I never knew they had a face running the WBF, so that's interesting. The commentators for this particular match are Gorilla, Monsoon, and Lord Alfred Hayes. Um, the matches are from all over uh, the country on these syndicated shows in the 80s WWF, so you'll get different commentators on every match, which is a little bit annoying. Gorilla Monsoon tells us that the championship committee will definitely be taking a look at the outcome of this match to determine whether or not one of the teams are going to be in line for a title shot later on. Lord Alfred Hayes attempts to expand on the point, but he is really awkward on commentary. I always found that whenever I listen to him. 
Also, early notes, I, I see the ringside area is not very well lit, so you only really see the first row or two in MSG, and then it's pretty dark after that. Um, it's looking very much like how WrestleMania 1 looked, even though it's a few years on from that by this stage. Um, Alfred Hayes has a weird line about the hammer, saying that he functions better when he's hurt, similar to the, the thing that would be picked up later on down the line with the hammer, where they basically say he doesn't get going for 10 or 15 minutes, even though none of his matches ever lasted that long. There's not really much action very early on, as the guys in the ring just circle each other, a few shoves, nothing really happening. Johnny V goes over to the commentary position and has a bit of a rant at Gorilla, but nothing substantial there either. And if you were playing the Gorilla Monsoon drinking game, you'd take your first shot of the night. As he calls Johnny V a fountain of misinformation. Haku finally does get us going with some action. He hits a decent atomic drop and some chops, or as Gorilla Monsoon is wont to call them, reverse knife edges. He tags in Tama, who comes in off the top rope and hits the arm, and then begins working on the arm, and the Islanders go for some quick tags, double-team manoeuvres, double-chops, etc. The match is still pretty slow, and we get Brutus and Tama back in the ring, and we end up with some more ringers before cutting back to the studio and partway through the match, which I found a little bit odd. When we come back from the commercial break, the action does pick up a little bit with Haku hitting a decent crossbody and the Islanders hitting a good double elbow on Beefcake who does a bit of a weird delayed cell falling over. And then I have some horrific flashbacks as Beefcake and Tamar attempt to trade Hammerlocks, but thankfully it doesn't last too long before they go on to trading uh, some decent chops. Johnny V starts going off at Gorilla again, and Beefcake ends up back getting out of the ring. Greg Valentine comes in and takes over control, hitting a decent-looking tombstone, but it took him about five minutes to execute. He had him up there for quite a while before he dropped. He does pin Tama, but thankfully Haku comes in and makes a save to keep the match going. As Haku comes in to make that save, I do notice he is absolutely jacked at this point and is full of back knee, which is a little bit gross. We get back on the action with Tama hitting a decent crossbody for a two, and then Beefcake getting in the ring to hit an inverted atomic drop, and that one earns him a two count as well. Hammers back in the ring and puts on the figure four, or at least attempts to. Just as he's about to drop down, Tama grabs a hold of him and rolls him up into a small package for a two count. Tama then reverses a suplex attempt from Valentine before Beefcake and Haku both end up in the ring. Haku gets all of his offense on both of the opponents. Tama comes off the top rope with a crossbody, gets up and nails Johnny V, who was on the apron, but Greg Valentine sneaks up behind him, picks him up sort of like a back suplex slash atomic drop, but crutches him straight on the ropes, and as the referee turns around, he gets the pinfall. A bit of a lame ending, and it was a reasonably slow match, but it wasn't too bad, nothing offensive. Going back to the studio, Gorilla Monsoon says that's exactly why Jack Tunney has to have a look at the antics of these managers at ringside, and then starts to sing the praises of, his, in his words, the world's greatest athlete, Hulk Hogan, and then we get a little bit of a video package highlighting his year of 1986. Um, you'll recognise some of the footage as being that classic green screen Hogan strumming the guitar, with the background being the American flag, over what is probably the most famous song in wrestling history.
fact for anyone that didn't know, that song was originally not recorded for Hulk Hogan, rather the original US Express of Mike Rotundo and Barry Windham. The video package itself was nothing special, it just highlighted some of the um, Hogan events of the past year, including the Orndorff turn and highlights of that angle, a match with Randy Savage, a Lumberjack match, match by the look of it, and a match with the Beefer, along with some various other highlights and weird black and white inserts that didn't really fit. From there we go over to the summit in Houston for Jake the Snake Roberts up against Tito Santana. And this time around the commentators are Gorilla Monsoon and Ken Resnick. I actually had to rewind it three times and I couldn't make out who it was and it's a name I hadn't heard before. And this is back in the time period before Jake had turned babyface in the Federation so it was still heel. And he was super lean at the time as well. It was really easy to notice. The match starts with... Roberts pulling down Tito a few times with some takedowns, but getting a handful of hair and doing so, and Tito complaining up a storm, and Jake just taking the piss out of him in general. Um, and I noticed early on in the match there were huge DDT chants, so it was really over before he'd even turned face. Gorilla Monsoon, however, wasn't a fan, as he told us that the DDT should be banned. And then we got something that I found really interesting. As a kid, I remember uh, big debates in the playground. Uh, back when I was actually still in England, it's a really vivid memory of mine about what DDT stood for. And one of the comments on this show, Gene, uh, sorry, Gorilla asked what he, what the DDT meant. And he said that Jake had told him it meant the end. And then Ken Resnick, in a really interesting line, says, isn't it an insecticide? And Gorilla Monsoon says, yes, that was always the rumor when we were a kid that it was named after insecticide or pesticide. So I found it fascinating to hear that on the show. Back in the ring, Tito gets on offense with some punches, but Jake doesn't let it go for long before taking a powder. When he does get back in the ring, we have a little back and forth before Tito unloads with a flying forearm. Uh, but Jake lands near to the ropes, so he gets his foot on the ropes out too. Not sure if that was Tito's finisher at the time, as they didn't sell it as such, and I do remember him using the figure four as well. Jake motions like he's going to go and get the bag with Damien in it, but Tito gets him in a hammerlock, then transitions it into a headlock before Jake reverses out of that with a nice back suplex, but Tito Santana doesn't let go of the headlock. Um, I remember him using this spot quite a bit, including, I think, on Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania, if memory serves. And then a really weird sort of amateurish thing. Jake's in the headlock for quite a while. Tito's got him down. The referee starts lifting his arm, and it just drops dead all three times. But then the match just sort of goes on. The referee ignores it. A little bit weird. Gorilla Monsoon then provides the case for wrestlers not being independent contractors and perhaps a union the world over when he says this is the only job where you'll have no idea what you're going to make until you get there because it'll depend on how many fans walk through the turnstiles. Seems a little bit harsh. Jake gets himself back on the offense with a jawbreaker in an inverted atomic drop, and once again the DDT chants start up. And he's getting some really nice crowd heat here, and he starts to go to work with his really nice punches. Jake always had a good jab and right cross as well before we go back to the studio for a commercial break. When we come back, Jake's still in control. The match is reasonably slow, but it's not too bad. I'm enjoying it again. The characters make a big difference, and when you like the people that are in there, it makes it easier. Jake hits his sick-looking knee lift, which I always enjoy as well, but he goes for a cocky cover and only gets a two count. He then puts on a headlock, and in perhaps the silliest example of wrestling logic so far on the show, let's go with the headlock with one arm. So he's just got one arm wrapped around the neck and uses the other arm to pull on the middle rope, giving him absolutely no advantage and in fact making the hold easy to get out of by letting go with one of the arms. We get a good little back and forth of action uh, coming towards a finishing sequence before Jake nails his cool short arm clothesline which was always a setup for the DDT when I was a kid. 
but he goes for a pinfall, only gets a two count, so then he decides to go and get Damien, but the referee begins counting him as though he's going to give him a DQ for bringing in the snake. And as Jake does eventually go for the DDT, Tito counters it, puts him in the figure four, but he's right next to the corner that Damien's in. So he grabs the bag and just throws the bag onto Tito and then pulls on the drawstring to let Damien out. The bell rings, but we're told that he didn't submit, nor was he DQ'd. It was actually a time limit draw while he was in the figure four. From there, we go back to the studio and Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby Heenan have a little bit of banter about New Year's resolutions. It's pretty funny. They were always good together, those two. We come back to the ring for King Harley Race with Bobby the Brain Heenan up against Sibi Afi. No idea who that was, sorry. He looks a little bit sort of like a cross between Haku and Jimmy Snooker. For this match, we have Vince McMahon and Jesse Ventura on commentary, which was a nice surprise. And we're told that Harley Race actually had to win two tournaments to become the King of the Ring. A little bit strange, that one. We get an inset promo from the JYD as well, basically saying there is no king and he only bows down to God above. Once the bell rings, uh, we we have Sivi Afi miss a splash in the corner, an avalanche type move. Race unloads with a couple of punches before hooking him in sort of a um, fisherman's brain buster for the 1-2-3 in a complete squash. Back to the studio for more Bobby uh, Heenan and Gorilla Monsoon banter, and you can really see their chemistry building. Before Ken Resnick, the commentator I mentioned earlier, interviews the Hart Foundation. Uh, at this point in time, Neidhart is a much better promo, and Bret Hart looks and sounds about 12 years old. We get some title change recaps from 1986, showing where Savage won the Intercontinental title off Tito Santana. The British Bulldogs winning the tag team titles at WrestleMania 2 from the Dream Team. And we see footage of Captain Luel Barno winning a six-man tag match with the Bulldogs against um, the Dream Team and Johnny, Johnny Valiant, where he pinned Johnny Valiant to go out a winner. Cut back to the studio where they have a little bit more banter and throw us to the next match, which is adorable Adrian Adonis and the Hart Foundation up against Mike Rotundo, better known uh, to most wrestling fans as IRS, Dan Spivey, who would later on become Waylon Mercy, and SD Jones, known for losing the squash match to King Kong Bundy at WrestleMania 1. Bobby Heenan and Gorilla Monsoon are the commentators for this one, and we're told it's coming from Phoenix, Arizona. And Bret Hart and the future IRS start off in the match. It doesn't take too long, though, no more than about 30 or 40 seconds before all six men are in the ring. Or oh, sorry, all five men. SD Jones stays on the apron and starts hitting headbutts. And then the baby faces take turns working over Bret Hart's arm when it all calms down. The heels do manage to catch Rotundo in the corner at one point, though. And Adonis gets in and hits a big power slam before tagging back out. And the Hart Foundation hit a decent double elbow on Rotundo. Rotundo manages to get his way out of trouble. And we end up with everyone in the ring yet again. And as it clears out, SD Jones attempts to put on an abdominal stretch on Adrian Adonis. That's a tongue twister, remember the red one? Uh, but the referee is distracted and off the ropes comes Brett with sort of an axe handle to the back of the head. And Adonis puts on the sleeper to get the victory in no time flat. The next match we're thrown to is Don Morocco up against Hillbilly Jim. We're told this is our main event of the show, and it is back in Madison Square Garden with Gorilla and Alfred on commentary again. For reasons not fully explained, Don Morocco comes out to Roddy Piper's music dressed as Roddy Piper, and Hillbilly Jim's in the ring, and we have a lot of stalling. Um, the first action or physical confrontation of the matches. Don Morocco stood on the second rope and Hillbilly Jim appearing to go and pinch his ass really hard. And Morocco sold it like a champ, but it was a bit strange. There's not much going on, so we get a chance to analyse sort of the cameras and the crowd and things. And I make a note that the cameras actually look 
similar to the fan cam that caught the click incident that became famous, there's not really much production tidiness to it at all at this point. Um, the old school, old school shows on the network will actually show this sort of style as well. If you go and watch any of those house shows, I finish writing my notes about the cameras and the production and I notice still no actual moves have happened. We've been in the ring for minutes and it's just been stalling, stalling, stalling. So I begin to wander around with my eyes to see if I can find anything else. And I notice the classic American tradition of the guy coming down um, the sort of aisle way to sell hot dogs and popcorn to people in the stands. And I just wish that was a thing over the rest of the world. Here in Australia, they close the bar 20 minutes before the game ends and you can't get anything. We do have to take a commercial break, and when we throw back to the studio, even Gorilla Monsoon is carrying on about how much stalling they're doing, blaming it on Morocco as the face commentator would, but he is pointing out that nothing's happening. We come back to the ring, and still no moves are happening. They're just circling each other and time-wasting, and my daughter, who happened to wander into the room at this point, uh, points to Don Morocco on the TV and says, He has big boobs, Daddy. This match is so atrocious that even at ringside, Mr. Fuji looks bored. There is just literally nothing for me to tell you about, so I think the sooner we get to the, the end, the better. The first real move I write down is a nerve hold, as though we needed a rest after all this. It is just absolute shit. The ending comes when Hillbilly Jim gets Morocco in a bear hug, and Mr. Fuji does his best Mr. Burns impersonation, coming in and hitting him with the softest whack on the back with the cane. Hillbilly Jim sells it like death ends up on the floor, and then he begins jabbing him incessantly with it as the referee um, calls for the bell, and the timekeeper goes into overdrive, ringing it over and over again, forcing my daughter to think that the ice cream truck was coming up the street. Unlucky. This match actually takes out my award for worst match of the night. And on the hammerlock scale that myself and Richie discussed on Twitter, I'm going to give this a 7 out of 10. Not the worst thing I've ever seen, but nothing actually happened. Um, wasn't offensive in that nothing terrible that pissed me off happened, but it certainly wasn't fun to watch. As we go back to the studio, Heenan comments on the fact that Fuji sort of ripped the overalls off Hillbilly Jim as well and says that he had no fashion anyway, that he's a bit of a hick. And Gorilla Monsoon starts to question, well, what about the fashion of King Kong Bundy? Can't say he's not got a point there, Bobby. The phone on the desk rings. Bobby Heenan answers it, passes it on to Gorilla, and it appears to be someone called Miss Betty from the conversation we hear. And apparently Gorilla is being hit on because he tells her he's a married man. And we run the credits, and that's the end of primetime wrestling. World Championship Wrestling comes to you from January 3rd, 1987, and we open with a video of Jim Cornette and the Midnight Express beating up on Jimmy Garvin before going to a bit of a Space Invaders style introduction package, and then we get the commentary team in the studio of Tony Schiavone and David Crockett, a real big change here having a studio format, something we haven't had on the show yet, and it made for an interesting sort of viewing here. In wonder the Rock and Roll Express pretty much immediately and cut a promo on Paul Jones and saying they want a world title shot. 
Once that's on, uh, over and done with, we go to our first match, which is Brad Armstrong up against Kent Glover. We get off to a pretty quick quick start with a good drop kick and a good takeover by Brad Armstrong. And then he begins riding a headlock. David Crockett on commentary informs us that there's a $1 million prize for the Crockett Cup upcoming, which is a tag team tournament. We find out later it's 25 teams invitational. As I pan around the crowd in the studio, it is a tiny little crowd. I've literally had more people watching my kids' football team at, on a Friday night, it, it's really poor. You can actually hear every individual voice that calls out in the crowd. The match doesn't last too long with a good fall and clothesline from Brad Armstrong before finishing it off with a Russian leg sweep for the three count. Back down to the interview area, we have a really slim Jim Cornette and a very young looking big boss man known then as Big Bubba Rogers who give a bit of a promo on scaffold matches in general and against the LOD saying they're going to be going on all over the country for the Midnight Express. We go to our second match of the night which is the Rock and Roll Express against two jobbers that didn't get named and the Rock and Roll Express come out really sort of playing to the crowd looking like your Nana's favourite tag team at this point and it was still 87 so they got worse from here. They have the nerve to keep on yelling things to the crowd like this is your dream baby. You wish boys come on be serious. Tony Schiavone does tell us however that they do have an official fan club and it's getting bigger by the day. Not much happens in this match. They have a bit of a double team and they nail their double drop kick, which was their finisher, and they get one, two, three in another squash match. Back to the studio interview area, and we've got Ronnie Garvin and Barry Windham, the US Tag Team Champs, with Tony Schiavone, who performs all the interviews for the night, so I'll get that out of the way nice and early. They cut a promo on the Midnight Express, Jim Cornette and Bubba Rogers, and Tony Schiavone has a whopper moustache. It's brilliant. After that, we get an interview with Tully Blanchard and J.J. Dillon. Um, they say they've taken 10 grand cash out of the bank, and J.J. does take it out of his pocket, and that whoever beats Tully for the title will be given this money. Tonight he's facing a guy called Tim Hornman, someone I haven't heard of before, and they've moved the time limit from 20 minutes to 25 to give him more time to lose. We then go to our next match, which is Ronnie Garvin up against someone called White Lightning. He starts off with a back suplex before going for a series of different pinfalls, Garvin that is, um, before going for a weak knockdown. And the crowd um, have a bit of a poor chant of knock him out, Ronnie knock him out, who then does pick the guy up, nail him with a big punch, and sits on him for the three count in a really poor squash. Nothing happened at all, worth noting. We then get a promo from Captain uh, Redneck Dick Murdoch, who's talking about how great the Crockett promotion is, how it's the best in the world, they've got the best shows, and to me he just sounds like he belongs off King of the Hill. He rambles for a little bit and then we go to the next match, which is Barry Windham up against Randy Barber. As Windham puts on a few nice takedowns early in the bout, I notice how good the ring sounds. It's well, it's well mic'd and obviously a close, sort of small little room, so the acoustics are really good. He hits a good shoulder and a nice arm drag before nailing in with the lariat for the 1-2-3, so another squash match. I know I'm saying that about pretty much every match at this point, but there's two ways of thinking about it. Squash matches are not all that exciting, but for me, if I turn on a show and I see a long runtime on a match that I've got no interest in, I'd probably rather watch a squash match with one person that I don't mind, so it doesn't bother me all that much, especially on TV shows. After that, we've got Jim Cornette coming out in another promo about the scaffold match. Before going to our first real non-squash match of the night, the Midnight Express up against George South and Mike Jackson, sadly not the thriller. We do have good back and forth as we have both teams managing to get some offense in, but with the bodies on display, the small rooms, the low crowds and the tights they're wearing, it does look a little bit indie-ish. 
Good action though, so I won't complain. There's a really nice gut wrench suplex by Dennis Condry and a huge back body drop by Eaton, who really has to come through with some decent performances to make up for his hammerlocks of doom. And he does hit a nice knee drop off the top rope, which goes a little way towards appeasing me. The match then doesn't last too much longer though as they nail a big double flapjack, their finisher for the three count. Was a decent little match for what it was. From there we go to a Ric Flair interview, as is famous, the Ric Flair with Tony Schiavone interview in the studio. He's bragging about his lifestyle, everything he has. One of the lines he says he's got $5 million in the bank, so this was obviously prior to several of his divorces. He talks down about the LOD, Nikita Koloff, um, Barry Windham, and Dusty Rhodes in a typical Ric Flair great promo where he goes a mile a minute and everything is clear and concise. Next up, we get an Ole and Arn Anderson promo, and they don't say anything of note other than the fact that 1987 is going to be their year. And we go for the TV title match, Tully Blanchard up against Tim Horner that I mentioned earlier. Um, Horner's a big dude, actually. I was quite surprised he didn't look at all like a jobber that I was expecting. And early on in the match, he works over Tully's arm. Um, he's in real control. He hits some elbows and goes back onto the arm. And we have a promo from Barry Windham in set where he's talking about the money on, on the line and how he hopes that Blanchard loses. And then he seems to stick around for commentary from then on. JJ goes to argue with him a little bit and Horner hits a backslide for a near fall, um, which gets JJ's attention back on the match and he begins clutching the cash pretty strongly. A sunset flip from Horner as well gets him a two um, and he sends Tully Blanchard into the ring post as well before hitting a suplex and then a small package for a two count. Tully does manage to get into control at some point and he hits a figure four leg lock but he's grabbing the ropes immediately so the referee counts him down. He's only got four seconds in the hold before he would have been DQ'd. Um, and on commentary, Wyndham calls Horner a man of a thousand moves, so somewhere a young Dean Malenko was taking note. Horner then gets a series of near falls off a wishbone um, and a good drop kick, and then he goes for a figure four of his own, but it is blocked, and Blanchard drops him on the top rope neck first. He doesn't manage to stay in control for too long, though, as we have a good suplex by Horner and a crossbody, but Blanchard rolls through the crossbody, hooks the tights, and gets a one, two, three to retain his TV title. If I'm being honest, this was a pretty good match, enjoyable, fast-paced, and Blanchard did a, a lot to put his opponent over, despite winning in the end. Wyndham then comes in and gets all over Tully, but the Andersons and Flair come out immediately and put him down with a big four-on-one beatdown before Tully hits his finisher, the slingshot suplex. We then go for a horseman promo as well. Next match is the Raging Bull, Manny Fernandez and Ravishing Rick Rude up against Alan West and Ed Robots. Champs jump straight in the ring and attack them immediately with a really cool looking double backbreaker. Um, a bear hug by Rude with an elbow off the top from Fernandez, and then Rude hits a DDT for the 1 2 3. It lasted about 15 seconds, and this was a true squash match. Uh, they then cut a promo with their manager, Paul Jones. From there, we're told by the commentators that we're going to get our first look at the Big Red Machine. Sadly, it's not a 87 appearance of Kane, but they're talking about a Russian Vladimir Pietrov. Before that happens, however, Ivan Kolov comes out to cut a promo on Nikita Kolov, hyping up that Vladimir Pietrov is going to destroy him. The match itself is Vladimir Pietrov, who is a huge dude, up against three men, Bill Tab, Randy, and Bill Mulkey. So 3v1, but he just hits all three of them, then the Russian hammer, which is sort of a cross between a clothesline and a chokeslam for the three count. And we have a promo challenging Nikita from Ivan Kolov. The next match on the list is Dick Murdoch up against 
Dick Murdoch, sorry, up against Henry Rutley. Um, Murdoch goes to work on the arm early, and I'll tell you what, if you were taking a shot for every time a match started that way in 87, you wouldn't make it to 88. Murdoch takes over control and hits a nice big slam, beats on him with some stomps and punches, an elbow to the head that gets a weird bug-eyed cell on the apron, before hitting him with a delayed brain buster for a three count in another decent squash match. Back to the podium, and it's Nikita Koloff's turn for an interview this time around. He's in his own t-shirt that looks like he drew it with a marker himself. It's pretty awful. And he's got a shocking accent, sort of Russian accent with a really deep voice. He sounds like he's got a mouthful of marbles. Next matchup is Ole and Arne Anderson up against uh, two guys who we only get last names off, which is Steven and Isley. Early on in the match, Arne's in control. He tags in Ole, who starts pounding away and working on the arm on one of the two. I'm not sure which. Uh, before tagging Arne back in to hit a spine buster, the lovely Arne Anderson spine buster for the three count. Didn't actually even see the second person in the match at all, so not quite sure whether or not we missed some of it or if he just never bothered to get in when he saw what was in front of him. Then we've got a match with Nikita Koloff up against a guy called Chance McCade. It's just a complete beatdown, beat ending in the Russian sickle, which is just a pretty sick-looking clothesline for the three-count for Nikita. Nothing much here. We then get a part of the show I was quite excited for, an LOD and Paul Ellering promo. They alternate between LOD and Road Warriors. I've obviously watched them in the WWF for years, so I will default to that. Um, Animal cuts a bit of a shouty promo, as he always did. And then Cornette. Um, is the subject of some abuse from Hawk, who then runs through them all one by one. He says, Cornet is a little man with a big mouth, Bubba's a big man with a little brain, and the Midnight Express a little man with no brains, which was a good line. Unfortunately, then he goes and spoils it all when he starts talking about Recruit and his partner, the Burrito. Little bit racist talk, I know it's the 80s, but come on. Another thing I noticed while this promo is going on is... Paul Ellering in the background holding a giant trophy and we're told as the promo comes to an end that it's a six-man tag team uh, championship trophy that the LOD hold with Dusty Rhodes. We then have our final match of the evening which is the LOD up against the team of Spearman and Fields. Again this doesn't last long. Hawk hits a nice neck breaker, the classic Hawk neck breaker. Animal hits a big jumping shoulder tackle and then we get a bit of a twist on the doomsday device where instead of Animal picking the opponent up on his shoulders he actually hits an atomic drop as Hawk comes off the top of the clothesline. It's kind of neat. For some reason then we get a recap of the Ivan Koloff promos from earlier and another replay of the Petriov match. Uh, not sure why they decided to show this again when we'd already seen it. And Tony Schiavone and David Crockett wrap up the show before we roll the credits. So coming back to deliver our winner with the five-point grading system that we go with normally. And this week for match quality, I've gone with the NWA's World Championship Wrestling. They were mostly squash matches, but I think the Tully Blanchard match was better than anything on the WWF program. And at least all these matches were either quick or good. There was nothing certainly to the low quality of the Hillbilly Jim Don Morocco match. Production value was a more difficult choice, but I did go with WCW Just. Um, even though it looked a lot smaller, the studio atmosphere, it, it ran smoothly, um, going from promo to match, from promo to match, people coming in and out. Um, it, what they did, they did well, whereas the WWF syndication show, it just went to matches from around the country. And yeah, it looked bigger, bigger crowds, but coming back to Bobby Heenan and Gorilla Monsoon for comments mid-match, it didn't work for me.
That being said, the advantage of the big crowds in the, in the syndicated shows um, gives WWF the nod for crowd heat. They were into everything they saw, even if some of it wasn't good. Storylines, however, I went with WCW. The sheer volume of people on their show made it a much easier sell for them to advance their storylines. There was some good makeup work on the WWF show, getting some of the Hogan stuff over and recapping the year, but WCW didn't just look at the past, they moved forward with a bunch of storylines. The only person not featured was Dusty Rhodes, and the commentators made mention of him not being there, as did several other wrestlers, and that helped advance storylines with the Four Horsemen as well. And characters I'm also going to give to WCW. They had a lot more on the show, and none of it was really poor, again, like Hillbilly Jim. Um, so, 4-1, NWA's World Championship Wrestling soundly defeats WWF's primetime wrestling. There you have it. Before I go, just another quick thank you to everyone for downloading. Um, I put out episode 6 this morning, and I had... 20-odd listens within two hours, which I found amazing. We're starting to get a little bit of a following for the show. So thank you to all. Thanks for everyone who's been interacting with me on Twitter. And please do let me know what you thought about the guest appearances on the last show, because it's something that, for the big shows, I think I'd like to continue. But if the show is too long for taste, and it's something we will consider down the line. With all that being said, I'm going to sign out. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you again shortly.
Oh, <laughs> 